Thanks, Phil, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany, both here in the sanctuary and online and across the street, also in the chapel. This is like an isolation ward over here. Three empty chairs, because Phil has a disease. No, I'm just kidding. It's all good. Uh, let's take a moment, we'll pray, and then begin. Father, thank you that we can uh, gather within these walls to listen for your voice. We would trust and ask, pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, Father, particularly asking that at this moment in our cultural history, in our national history, that you'd speak to each of our hearts in such a way, Father, that we leave here uh, fortified to be people of hope and reconciliation and, and light. Thank you, Father, that you can do this. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. Hearts to respond. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't read many business books, but I do read every business book by an author named Jim Collins, and he's written a book entitled How the Mighty Fall, and I just will begin by quoting this morning uh, a story from his own personal life that really sets up what we're talking about this morning. On a cloudless August day in 2002, my wife Joanne and I set out to run the long uphill haul to Electric Pass outside Aspen, Colorado. Starts at an, alti starts at an altitude of 9,800 feet, ends above 13,000. At about 11,000 feet, I, being less of a runner than my wife, capitulated to the thin air, slowed to a walk, while Joanne continued her uphill assault. As I emerged from the tree line, where thin air limits vegetation to scruffy shrubs and hardy mountain flowers, I spotted her far ahead in a bright red sweatshirt, running from switchback to switchback, continuing toward the summit. Super healthy. Two months later, she received a diagnosis that would lead to two mastectomies. And I realized in retrospect that at the very moment when she looked like the picture of health pounding her way up Electric Pass, she was already carrying the cancer. Uh, here's why I share that with you this morning. The criteria by which we determine health ultimately becomes the determinant factor regarding whether or not we will see ourselves as sick and hence seek the cure that God alone can provide. And so we have a thing in American culture, in particular in Seattle, we don't say hello, we say, how's it going? At least I do. And then you say, it's fine, which means nothing. Right? We all know that, so we're, we're okay with it somehow. How are you doing? Oh, it's, I'm fine. And then we go, and we, you know, we move on. It's just like saying hello. But here's the thing. I want you to think about what if you were actually answering the question. How are you? Here's the, here's the deal. Your answer is going to de be determined by your criteria regarding what constitutes health. And so you might say, I'm fine. Be why? There's lots of money in the bank. And so I'm not worried about anything that's going to happen in the future. Or I'm fine. I've got two master's degrees, so I'll be able to take care of myself no matter what happens. Or I'm fine because I have this worldview that enables me to understand who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong. I'm up here on the moral high ground. I'm fine. Or I'm fine because I'm serving in the shelter. Or I'm serving at the community meal. Or I'm leading three Bible studies. Or I'm fine because I memorized Isaiah when I was a kid and got a lot of badges at Awana. Or I'm fine... <laughs> You know, because I go to church, and I'm just going to say to you, uh, whatever, right? God has a different criteria. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, 
God made him Christ who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf in order that we might, and here's the criteria for health, in order that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, in order that we might display to a desperate, anxious, angry, fearful world nothing less than Christ, the hope, love, wisdom, joy of Christ coursing through your veins, pouring out of your lips, in your eye contact, in your financial choices, in how you treat your body, everything displaying Jesus. How are you? That's the question, right? And, and, and so Paul here in Romans 2 is on a journey seeking to show us our sickness so that we we'll be motivated to seek the cure found in Christ. And what he has to do is he has to show us kind of the games we play, to quote Eric Burns, the psychologist, the games we play to prevent ourselves from seeing our own sickness because if I don't think I'm sick, I won't, I won't seek the cure. So, so uh, what he does in this chapter, chapter 2 of Romans, is he kind of exposes this Grand Canyon between who God is and who we are. And he says, hey, remember, you're, you're made actually to display the image of God. So if God is here and you're here, that's a, then you're not fine. And that's what we're going to look at this morning by looking first at God's character and then our fails. God's character, here, in, a, in a nutshell, God is kind and just. Our fails, we judge others and we don't repent. So God is here, we're here, we got to move. That, let's pray, it's over. No, let me, let me explain now what this all means, right? So first of all, uh, God, let's look at God's character. God is kind. And in Romans 2... This is how that's articulated for us, uh, and, and if you don't have a Bible, no problem, I do, and I'll read for you. Romans 2, verses 4 and 5, if you have a Bible, there's one, or don't, there's one in the pew in front of you. Romans 2, 4, do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, but because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So verse 5, the judgment of God. Verse 4, the kindness of God. Let's look at both of those things briefly here. First of all, when it says God's kind, what does that mean? Well, this, this kindness comes in a package here in verse 4, uh, the kindness and tolerance and patience of God. And what this is saying is that God is irrevocably, unconditionally, infinitely for you, even when you fail and you do. God never, God's assessment of you, God's love for you has never, ever changed. And not only that, but God isn't distantly for, for you. God is actively involved in your life. God shows us this in the scriptures over and over again. I'll give you one example. Israel in the wilderness shows us God's patience, right? This is the people of God, and they saw a plague, a plague, a plague, 10 plagues on the nation of Egypt, judgment intended uh, to end the oppression so that Egypt would free Israel from slavery. So all these judgments, and, and these plagues, uh, would afflict Egypt and spare uh, the Jews, right? Ten times, eventuating in Israel uh, leaving Egypt. And then, having seen God be irrevocably for them, they come up to the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is chasing them. And all of God's kind of faithfulness and God's for them character, they forget about it in, a, in an instant. And so as soon as they're up against the Red Sea with the Egyptian army coming, immediately, what do they say to Moses? They say, oh, yeah, I know. You just brought us out here to kill us, right? And Moses gets a little annoyed, and then he goes to God, and he says, what's up? And then God says, lift your stick. He lifts his stick. Red Sea parts. They go through. 
you know, drowns the Egyptians. And on the other side, dancing and celebrating and all that stuff. And then three days later, they're thirsty. And what do they say? Moses, God brought us out here to kill us with thirst. And Moses is like this. Really? Don't you remember? Ten plagues, Red Sea parted, Red Sea collapsed, Egyptian army. Don't you think God is for you? Nope. God brought us out to kill us. Then God gives them water, right? So, oh, God's awesome. Two days later, they're hungry. God brought us out to kill us with starvation, right? So God gives them food. A few days after that, they're like this. We're sick of this food. Are you kidding me? Manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner. We're, like, come on, we're paleo. We want quail. So <laughs> we need meat and we need it now. God gives them meat. At, like every time they complain, God's still with them, still with them, still with them. This is God. Like totally patient when, when we doubt, when we deny, when we fail, when we're cynical, no matter what. Listen, if you're running actively from God, run. Wherever you go, God's already there. And the beautiful example of this is Peter in John 20. He, he says he'll die for Christ, then he denies Christ three times, and then uh, in the wake of the crucifixion, he says, I'm done with this stuff, I'm going fishing, and so he's fishing, he fails all night long to catch anything, and then um, Jesus is where he was running away, Jesus is there, right? And Jesus shouts as he sees the boat at dawn, and I, this just cracks me up, here's Jesus, children, you don't have any fish, do you? Like, you can't even fish anymore. That's how hopeless you are. And then he says, put your net on the other side. They put the net in. They, you know, all this fish. The boat sinks. Peter get, jumps, swims to shore. And here's Jesus. And if I'm Peter in that moment, having said to Jesus, I would die for you, and I denied him three times, I'd be waiting for this word from Jesus. Hey, I told you you'd deny me. You denied me. You're off the team. Like, I'm going to find somebody who's on my side someone who can get it done, someone with discipline, someone who keeps their word. You're fired. Not Jesus. Hey, this is what he asks. He says, do you love me like with agape, like with spiritual, supernatural, unconditional, infinite love? It's a stupid question at a level. The obvious answer is no. <laughs> and so Jesus, uh, Peter's response to Jesus is, no, I don't agape love you. I phileo love you. Like, I love you like a friend, but friendship love is often conditional love. And then, and then instead of Jesus saying, I knew it, like, you're done, what does he say? Feed my sheep. Like, that's powerful. That's the kindness and patience of God. God's for us. Do we doubt? Do we fail? Are we cynical? Do we have lust issues? Yes, 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 yes. Nothing changes. Because God never loved you because you performed. That's the kindness and patience of God. Now, here's the thing. In addition to God's kindness and patience, God is also the judge. And, and this is in the text. When we don't respond to God's revelation, the evil that is in us remains like a cancer and will continue to grow. The evil that is in humanity will continue to grow. And so God must intervene to stem the tide of evil. And so judgment enters in as well in order that we might not destroy ourselves. So every time we turn away from what God is calling us to do or be, that turning away leads to judgment. Adam and Eve judged in the garden. 
All of humanity, judged in the flood with Noah, Genesis chapter 6. Jacob and sons, judged during the massive famine that almost wiped them out. Egypt, judged for oppression of the Jews. Israel in the wilderness, judged for their failure to trust and follow God completely. The Assyrians, judged. The Babylonians, judged. The Greeks, judged. The Romans, judged. The kings, judged. Reichs, judged. Dictators, judged. Nations, judged. Judged for instigating and perpetuating oppression and injustice. Sometimes judged immediately, sometimes over centuries, sometimes dramatically, sometimes subtly. But hear this word, God is the final judge of the whole world, and that's actually good news because God is intent on destroying evil. And because of this, we gather here as people who know that the end of history will mean the end of oppression and slavery and sexual abuse and human trafficking and starvation and greed and cancer and fear and hate because God's judgment destroys all evil. That's, that's good news. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be standing here today. So we need to understand that the judgment of God is a good aspect of God's character. And we live in a world where many people say, you know, I can't wrap my mind around a God who judges. And, and, and I go, wait a minute, let's really think that through. If you're saying you can't wrap your mind around a God who judges, what you're really saying is, I want a God who unconditionally accepts everything that happens in the world, including evil. Do you, uh, uh, wait a minute, stop now. Let's think about that. Are you really sure you want a God who unconditionally accepts evil in the world? Are you okay with uh, uh, abuse of power for sexual favors? Are you okay with that? Or would you rather somebody steps in and intervenes? Are you okay with six million Jews in, in, in the ovens? Or would you rather somebody steps in? Are you okay with human trafficking, with oppression, with, with, with the fact that we have enough food to feed everybody but people are starving, with the fact that we have enough medical wisdom to heal millions and, and millions have no access to health care? If you're okay with that, then, then you don't want God to judge. But, but the reality is we don't want to live in a world where unrighteousness and evil goes unchecked. Nobody does. So it's actually good news that God's a judge and, and what you see then is this character of God that's over here, like the summary statement articulated in John 1.14, Jesus, who is the image of God. So Jesus is the full expression of God. It says when, when Jesus became a human, right, it says we beheld the image of God, and then here's the phrase, full of grace and truth. This is very important because what John 1.14 means is unfathomable. It means he's full of grace and full of truth. It means he's 100% grace and 100% truth. And what that means is unfathomable because he's 200%. And he can't be that, but he is that. Does this make sense? So this is why, this is why none, none of us can ever like, display that properly. We can't be full of grace and truth. In, in our humanity, uh, we choose love and kindness at the expense of judgment. Or we choose judgment at the expense of kindness. And as history unfolds, and the history of families and cultures and all kinds of things unfold, that's, when that just c continues unchecked because Christ is conspicuously absent and we're unresponsive, then cultures fragment and polarize, and then you have a bunch of people who are into kindness and mercy and don't like judgment. Or at least they say that. And people who are into judgment but don't, don't like kindness and mercy. And in reality, everyone is longing for both. Does this make sense? So if God were only kind and not the judge, that'd be a huge problem 
because evil would flourish unchecked and humanity would destroy itself. But if God were only the judge and not kind, God in destroying evil would destroy us. So what we need is what we have, a God who is full of grace and full of truth. So so that's God over here. Now, here's humanity. Two particular fails that Paul articulates in Romans 2. We judge others and we don't repent. Let's just look at those things briefly. First of all, this is what Paul says. We judge judge each other. And to judge means to assess something, to assess something's value. And the clear evidence that the human heart is messed up is the way that we assess one another. And, And this is what's really at stake, because remember, he's writing on the subject of division. Like Paul is trying to get Christians to unite And what he's saying here in verses 1 through 3 of Romans isn't that people are calling certain actions evil. What he's saying is uh, we're we're isolating an action in a person, and by elevating that action and making that action the embodiment of evil, and then we don't have that problem, then by, by elevating that, we make you bad, and if you're bad then by default, I become what? Do you see? I become the good one. And so now I'm up here and you're down there. Now, listen, this is like more than applicable to this exact moment in history because of all the stuff that goes down in our 24-7 news cycle, everyone thinks they're up here and others are down there. Does this make sense? Like we're so mad at the people who voted that way yesterday. No matter where you are on the spectrum politically, you're angry. It's, and we're so angry that it's even hard for us to wrap our minds around how anyone could be angry the other way than us. Does this, does this make sense? And what Paul is saying is that right there is the problem. Because when I, when I elevate the sins that I don't do and make them the big ones, then I'm assessing value. And, and we might think this simply means we objectify people, but it means more than that. But it does mean that. It means I, by, by judging you, I become, in a sense, fixated on your shortcomings, and in that fixation, I'm blind to my own. Are you with me? So, so what I've done is I've changed the criteria for health, and I've said, oh, yeah, this is, this is righteousness to care about this one thing, and you don't, and I do, I'm righteous. So I've, I've made my own criteria for health. Like, um, because I eat a lot of bacon, my cholesterol level might be a little higher than it ought to be. I'm not sure, you know. So then it's so tempting to cherry pick. Like, I've got a dozen articles in my, like, Facebook or my, my internet uh, Favorites. I've got all these articles about why cl- the, your cholesterol number is meaningless. And every, you know, every time, like I get a lab report, I go read those articles again, and I go, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I got this. It's no problem. It's all good. You know, <laughs> more bacon. Like that's what I do. Now that's just a little bit of a metaphor, but it, do you understand? This is how we change the rules, and now we're fine. And and, and then. Uh, it, gets, it actually gets worse because 
the larger point is this. We end up not only individually saying we have it right, but as people groups and nations, we end up saying we have it right. And, and then we're, we're lacking collective confession that can heal us. Let me give you one example. King George VII, Elizabeth I, and James I. So these are all back in the day when England is moving over here across the water. They all declared this doctrine terra nullius, or nullius, terra nullius, Latin again, like the singing this morning, Latin for empty earth. And this is, this is what uh, King George VII said. Lands that are not occupied by any person or nation or lands that are occupied but by a non-Christian king shall be considered empty and available for discovery and must be settled and, quote, Christianized. James I used this principle to invoke colonization so that, quote, heathen infidels and savages might come to know Christ. Now, let me just say, this is judgment. <clears throat> Do you understand? Excuse me. <coughs> Cup of tea. This is judgment that ultimately says, hey, this people group, is, they've got it wrong. And by, de by default, they've got it wrong. We have it what? Right. We're here, they're there. So I have nothing to learn from the entire Native American culture. They have everything to learn from me. That's a problem. This is what Paul is saying. So we live, like it's in us, to judge. And I shared this last week a little bit as well, how <clears throat> when I did a sermon on uh, husbands needing to love their wives sacrificially, back in 1984, all the wives signed up for the tape, the cassette, because they wanted, and they gave them to their husbands, you know. You need to hear this. That's our human heart. That's just the way we are. So let's acknowledge that, because that's, that's part of our sickness. Second, <clears throat> excuse me, second, we don't repent. Verses 5 through 7, because of your stubborn, unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath. Well, what does this mean, repent? Literally, the word repent means this. I'm not only am I turning away, it's not, by the way, repentance is not, oh, I'm a bad person, like in some generic way. That's, or like I feel sorry for myself. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning from something to something. It's, the word is metanoia. It's like to turn around, right? So, repentance means to turn away from one thing, turn towards something. So, inherent in repentance is our receptivity to this beautiful thing over here, God's revelation. So God is revealing God's character to us all the time. Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And, and, and so the kindness of God is intended to be kind of this music over here that's, that's calling us away from where we're at. And where we're at, we're angry, we're self-righteous, we're judging, we're divided, we're fragmented, and in addition to those kind of collective social sins, all of us are carrying other stuff as well. So we're over here in this, in this realm of anger, and God is saying, okay, listen to the music that is my character. And this music will woo you and, and, and call you, and then as you turn away, that'll be the key to your freedom and transformation. But you have to turn, to turn away from where we're at, all this anger toward God. Now, uh, a, a key verse here that helps me turn is Psalm 34, verse 8, which says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the word taste here is a very important word because to taste your food 
You must do what? You must pay attention to your food. You have to pay attention. And it's true of all of us in the room. There are times in our lives when if someone said to you, what did you have for lunch? We'd be like this, I can't remember. And why would you not be able to remember what you had for lunch? Because you were, you were multitasking. You weren't tasting your food. So you, you were eating and um, on your computer, uh, watching YouTube or cat videos on Facebook or, or the news, or, or you, were, you were eating and you were on the phone at the same time, or you were eating and you were driving. And so the meal was entirely utilitarian and incidental, and you weren't paying attention. It was a gift from God, right? It was, it was, it was glorious. It was provision. It was sustaining. It was nourishing, I hope. Uh, and you don't even remember it. You didn't taste it. And so what God is saying in Psalm 34 is pay attention to this glorious uh, provision of, of beauty and fellowship and health and material provision. God is trying to woo you. Do you understand? And though the world is desperately wicked and messed up, it's also true the world is incredibly beautiful. And so taste the beauty is what God is saying. That's where it all starts. Yesterday, uh, my daughter and son-in-law and almost three-year-old granddaughter were up visiting. They came up Friday night. Friday night, it was raining really hard where we live in the mountains. And when we woke up, it had snowed just to just above us. And so there was snow on all the peaks. It was a blue sky day. So, uh, you know, I said, we've got to go for a walk as a, as a group, you know. And so we go over to this little pond and the, the salmon are you know, spawning and swimming upstream and the trees are red and the sky is blue and the mountains are white and my little, my little three-year-old granddaughter is this ball of joy and she just is asking a million questions about everything. And when I'm looking at her, when I'm looking at her looking at the world with eyes like this, this is what I say, she's tasting. Do you understand? She's tasting. She's seen the, she sees the fish, her eyes are big. She sees the snow, her eyes are big. She sees the leaves, her eyes are big. Are you tasting? Are you tasting the beauty of God all around you? The, the gift of food, the gift of friendship, the gift of intimacy, the gift of beauty, the gift of change of seasons. We're invited to taste the kindness of God. And watch this. It's crazy, but when I'm attuned to the kindness of God, I become more attuned as well uh, to the evil that's in the world. Because in the midst of all this beauty, as we're walking around this lake, enjoying health and provision and abundance, I'm mindful of refugees in Libya trying to find their way to Europe and a village in Syria that isn't sure if they're going to be nerve-gassed or not and, and oppression and injustice in the, in the halls of power and and addictive behavior, and homelessness, and desperate loneliness. And it's all around us, and we see the beauty, and we see the brokenness, and we're invited to turn to God, who desires that the world increase in beauty, who desires that brokenness be addressed through us. But we have to, we have to pay attention to both the beauty and the brokenness, uh, Simone Veil, the French theologian, taught us that the most profound alterations of our lives come in response to great beauty or great suffering. And the thing is, we just don't pay attention. 
And so the world is actually way more beautiful than most of us realize because we're not paying attention. And the world is actually way more broken than most of us realize because also we're not paying attention. But when we allow the beauty and the brokenness of the, of, of the world to, to kind of ravish our hearts, it's that that becomes the basis of our turning. And here's the thing, we don't, we don't allow it. And until we see the beauty and the kindness and the mercy and the gifts and the suffering and the loss and the hypocrisy and the injustice, until we see it all and turn to the one who is the solution to the brokenness, we're, we're stuck. And to, I'll be blunt, many of us live in this moment only seeing the injustice and the hypocrisy and not the beauty. And some of us have shrunk our worlds down. We only see the beauty and not the suffering. But when we see the beauty and the suffering, the kindness and the judgment of God, when we see both, now we want to turn. That's the thing. Now, this, we see this chasm between who God is, kind and just, uh, right? Kindness and, and justice, mercy and judgment, grace and truth. And here, this is who we are. We, we judge others and in so doing put them down so that we feel like we're on the moral high ground. And we fail to taste and see that the Lord is good. And in our failure to taste, uh, we, we fail to turn. And so we're, we're unrepentant. How do we get out of this mess? Well, the, the last section of, of Romans 2 is about the doctrine of circumcision. And that's why Phil read what he read this morning. But I'm gonna, rather than read it for you out of Romans 2, I'm just going to paraphrase it. You see, what Paul is saying is there were people who used kind of the doctrine of circumcision to say, I'm here, and by virtue of me being circumcised and you not, you're here. All right? That's what he's, that's what he's saying in, at the end of Romans 2. And he goes, look, look. He says, so you're outwardly circumcised, but if you're outwardly circumcised, but you're not representing the heart of God, you're not up here, you're down here. And in fact, if someone is outwardly uncircumcised, but representing the heart of God, they're not down here, they're up here. <laughs> because what matters isn't circumcision physically. What matters, what Paul is saying is what matters is circumcision of the heart. In other words, has, like have you had heart surgery so that the cancer that is sin that is in you, not in Congress, not in Seattle City Council, the, the cancer that is in you. Have you had heart surgery so that the cancer that is in you has been like laser destroyed through radioactivity or however that works? Have you dealt with yours? That's real circumcision. And so Paul says in Colossians 2 that when we turn to Christ, when we turn to Christ, we're, we're circumcised, all of us. In other words, God, God takes the kind of the radioactivity of God's resurrection life and destroys the cancer of the sin in you. So that now, if, to the extent that you live out from this new identity, this new heart, this, this new hope, this new life, to the extent that you live out from that, you begin to represent in real time, beyond the walls of this church, in this city, in the hospital, in the boardroom, in the bedroom, in the classroom, wherever you are, you are the presence of Jesus. And that begins to become a reality only when you say, I'm sick and I need the cure. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given me a new heart. That's what I needed all along. Not more religion, not a to-do list. I need a new heart. I need a new heart. I don't know. I'll just tell you, super meaningful for me to study it this week. 
And I feel bad that you only get to hear it once because I need to hear this 30 times this week before finally on my knees I prayed and I said, God, I see now. Now I see it. Oh, this is my problem. And I need to name it and say, hey, thank you, Jesus, that having turned to you, you now have given me the capacity to overcome this because your life is never cynical. Your life is, is, is never melancholic to the point of disengagement. Your life doesn't want to give up on other people. Your life is hope and joy and peace and wisdom. I need it. <laughs> but I won't seek the cure if I don't know how, that I have a disease. I won't seek the cure. So I just ask at the end, how are you? How are you doing? Oh, oh, I'm fine. No, you're not. I'm your doctor this morning. No, you're not. What do you mean I'm not? Yeah, here's the criteria for health. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become in this city nothing less than the righteousness of God, that we might display to our world love, joy, peace, hope, patience. How you doing? You're sick. Do you speak hope? Are you at peace? <laughs> Do you love your enemies? Are you content right now? Are you confident that when you go into your workplace tomorrow morning, you will be the presence of light and joy and healing? Do you really believe that? Do you sleep well at night? Are you making good food choices? Good sexual choices? How's your thought life? Are you confident regarding the future? <laughs> I have good news. Turn to Christ, and Christ's life within is your cure. But like any medication, there's side effect warnings. <laughs> May cause new priorities, freedom from addictions, clarity of purpose, increased generosity, in rare instances, profound expressions of pure joy in the midst of hardship. <laughs> See your faith community weekly for contentment lasting more than four hours. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we need you more than we know. But if we know even a shred of our need for you, we'll turn. Give us eyes to see, hearts to respond, even this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to respond this morning in this particular way. There's a little prayer that you, I want you to come write in these books. Thank you, risen Christ, who lives in me, that you're the cure for. And then I want you to name the thing that you need. You're the cure for cynicism. You're the cure for anger. You're the cure for disengagement. You're the, you're the cure for doubt. You're the cure for lust. You're the cure for addiction, for anxiety. Name it. I receive, right? You is the cure. Thank you. And then we go out as people of hope, knowing that the, the, the medicine that is Christ's resurrection life is healing us. Let's respond collectively this morning.